0: You know, it's true. The cross ought to have made us different people now. huh? When you consider what Christ has done for us there, it ought to have changed us that we are so different. We don't want to be what we used to be. I think of two individuals in the New Testament uh, who kept their allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ quiet. They didn't say anything. They very likely were part of groups and committees and decisions that were making decisions about what to do with this man called Jesus. And among them were those who wanted him put to death and the vote was made and the motion passed and they crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are mindful of the fact that at the time of his death, two people came forward who had been secret and quiet all that time before. One was named Nicodemus. One was Joseph of Arimathea. And I think a little bit about the difference it made to them that day. For in stepping forward and identifying with one who was labeled a criminal and executed... By their own party, their own their own co-workers. They were setting themselves up for the very same thing. You could almost see them saying, well, there goes the job, there goes my reputation, there goes all those years. That I've been a teacher. That I've been a part of the decision making of this country. All these things that have given me great significance. All of it's gone. I am stepping forward. Because Jesus died. And my name is now associated to that. And we know their story from there. How they came forward and they, they buried Christ. And you know it's interesting. We don't read much else about them do we? But think of the ramifications of being identified with Jesus Christ. We are identified with Jesus Christ because we believe that he died for us. And we have come to know him as our Savior. And that ought to be something that makes a difference in the way we live. We're in James chapter 5. And it is a hard passage, (laughs) Not so much in understanding it, but reading it, it's very convicting. Even if you haven't done this, you feel convicted. When I was back in the eighth grade, we had a teacher in our English class, and this would not go over well in today's uh, educational circles. Uh, He had a terrible temper. Everyone was scared to death of this man. Uh, He would he would get angry and punch the blackboard. And there was evidence of that. When you come into class and there's a hole in the blackboard, you say, oh, it's not a good day. <laughs> but his, his technique was something like this. If if we, if we he was teaching along in this English class, and it was wonderful because he's teaching us beautiful poetry. You know, this big old mean kind of guy doing this. And as he's going through it, if somebody was over there you know, about where Sue and Jeff are sitting and they're just talking or something like that, he'd stop and he'd go like this. He'd turn and face toward the wall opposite of whoever it was and he'd start yelling at that wall about how rude it is to be talking in class and it's against the rules and on and on and on. Everybody on that side of the room shrank three inches out of fear that it was them. They didn't know who it was, but they felt guilty because of the way he would address the whole bunch. And they just felt, you know, when we found out it wasn't us, it was somebody else, that made us feel better, but still, it was one of those experiences, which maybe you've seen before, known something like that, where somebody is being accused in the crowd, and, and the rest of us start to feel the guilt of that. We're saying, is it me? Is it me? That's the way I start James chapter 5. When I read through this, I look at this and I say, Lord, may this not be me you're talking to. It's talking to somebody who is not only setting themselves up for serious, and there's no way to uh, under understate this, a serious disappointment in the judgment day when they find out their money means nothing. And also the second part that we're going to see today in chapter 5 of James, verse 4 through 5, in order to gain that, they misused and abused other people. And so that's where we are in this topic. And And uh, the reason why we're going through this is so that our faith, when we look at it for what it is, may it be authentic, living faith. Not just that we sign a doctrinal statement. Not just that we go to the proper kind of a church or we, we sing the right songs or we dress the right way or such like that. Because that's not what this is about. This is about our relationship with the Lord and how do we live. As James would say in his book, and we sometimes use this as a theme, not merely to be hearers of the word but to be doers of it. And that's where we are in our study here. And chapter 5 is an unusual place to study that. But it certainly brings up a topic that makes us very uncomfortable. And it makes us stop and ask, Lord, is my faith authentic? Or have I used other things around me to make it look like I'm faithful? Like I'm spiritual? Like I'm righteous? At least have I been trying to impress the world? Or am I living for you? So, now that you're all primed for it, James chapter 5, we've done the first three verses, but I'm going to read them anyway, all the way up to verse number 6, to give you the full context. Come now, you rich, weep, howl, for your miseries are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, your garments have become moth-eaten, your gold and your silver have rusted and the rest will be a witness against you, and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, and which has been withheld by you, cries out against you, and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived luxuriously on the earth, Led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. Lord, we need help this morning working through a passage like this. We need help in understanding these words and how it's being addressed. But we also need help because we look in a mirror. As we look in a mirror, we, we see the tendencies of man's ways, man's will, and man's strength. And all that man can do to try to look impressive on this earth and somehow think that they're impressive before your eyes. But your word puts things down in black and white and helps us to see who we really are. Drives us back to a simple point how dependent we are of you for everything, absolutely everything, even the way we live on this earth. And I pray, Lord, that as we examine living faith, that you might make your mark in our hearts. For there is much here for us to learn and much for us to do. And I pray that this becomes very practical to us and helps us to live in such a way That people do not see us, but they see our Savior who is in us. That they note that we must be different because we've spent time with you. Help us with this passage. We pray and guide us through it and work in our hearts and change us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, the examination of living faith. That's our topic that we are on. There are some things that uh, James tells us we ought to be resistant toward. We should react and run the other way. That's my way of expressing this. There are things that we should embrace and we should do. And what we see in the first part of chapter 5, the first six verses, are things to run away from. It's that simple. These are not to be our traits. These do not reflect those who live by faith, those who walk by faith. These are the traits of those who are self-indulgent and uh, they make two mistakes. We started with it last time. Verse 1 through 3, they're dependent on their wealth. The concept, as you saw as I read to it, a couple of times it mentions judgment. The judgment is coming. The day of judgment is upon you and things like that. You stored up your treasure for the last days. Those kind of phrases in this is, is... suggestive that these have collected their wealth over the years, hoping that somehow that might impress God. That might make an impact in the Judgment Day, as if that is what God measures by. I'm so glad He doesn't. So many people of our world would never qualify to stand in His presence if it was based on wealth. If it was based on works, Honestly, folks, even though we we say we don't believe works will save us, how many of us actually live as if it would? We practice as if it would. We go about our days as if, you know, what we do is impressing God, and of course, that is why He likes us so much. I read a quote just this last week. I thought it was actually quite humorous. It was something D.L. Moody said back in the 1800s. He says he was very glad... That salvation was not based on works. Or else he'd have to sit through all of eternity listening to people brag about it. <laughs> and I said, that is there's one thing we're relieved from <laughs> dependence upon your wealth. He says, You're rich, but your riches are corrupted. They've rotted, they've rusted. Your garments are moth eaten. You've laid up these treasures for the last days, and what good are they? In the last days, they're gone. They've dissolved. They've been ruined. It's Kind of a tough thing to put your whole life based on that and find out it's worth nothing. Worth nothing. It's a very poor substitute for your soul, isn't it? That's what we talked about last week, especially when Jesus asked the question, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Wealth cheapens the value of the soul. Wealth cheapens the value of grace. Wealth cheapens the price of the precious blood of Christ. Wealth distorts it. And if Christ could have saved you by money, he certainly could have. But he saved you by dying on your behalf. And that's what we read in Scripture, because you're not redeemed with perishable things, right? Not with silver, not with gold, not from the feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood, the blood from a lamb unblemished and spotless. It was the blood of Christ. That saves you. And that's what we hold to. So when you stand before the Lord, folks... Take the lesson right from verse 1 through 3 here. Don't go with anything in your hands thinking it's going to stand in front of God and impress Him. Stand in the righteousness of Christ alone. That's where we stand. That's what Scripture tells us. And I like those verses. That helps me. That helps me set my perspective straight again. Because you know, we could say that, we could put it down in our doctrinal statement, we could live like that and all these kind of things. But how much in this world keeps saying, oh, oh, tried this way, tried this way? And the world just bombards us constantly with the alternatives to living by faith. And sometimes we just need to have that slap to get us back on the road, don't we? So this is right, this is what God says and such scenes like this brings it to the forefront. The fact is God does not show partiality. I'm going to take you, before we go into James too much here, into Romans chapter 2 for a minute. Romans chapter number 2. It was Martin Luther that said these two books don't get along. He couldn't figure out how to do it. But here it is. What Paul says in Romans 2 is exactly what James is saying in James chapter 5. And I'm just going to read the first 11 verses. It sounds like a lot, but it's not. Listen carefully. Romans 2, verse 1, Therefore you have no excuse. Every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourselves, for you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you not suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you not think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepented heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of judgment and revelation at the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds, to those who by perseverance in doing good Seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. To those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. That last phrase kind of stuns, doesn't it? The collection of wealth for the wealth for the sake of impressing God, balancing your life on all that as that which will get you in or get you off, as some people might be worried about. It will not work in the judgment day. Simply put, you either stand before God in the righteousness of Christ. Or you have come up with a scheme you've manufactured yourself. And that won't work. That just won't work. Now, you would expect James to be addressing unbelievers here. Because of the tone of that. Even that Romans 2 passage. (laughs) He's like, ooh, that's for unbelievers. That's not for me. But who does Paul write to? Church in Rome? Who does James write to? Well, I'll give you a clue. He calls them brethren many, many times in the passage. To help? He's writing to the church. He's writing to the church about things like this. He wants us to look again at that gospel we have received. Look again at the fact that it's only Jesus who qualifies as the way and the truth and the life. And the reality is No man comes to the Father, but through him, that's it. You can't go any other way. So James is writing to the church, and his audience is the brethren, and he, he brings up the rich here. And maybe the rich are not believers, but they are the illustration of his point. Believers are supposed to have an authentic faith, and we're not to be like them. We're not to be self indulgent like them. We're not to be dependent on wealth like them. Matter of fact, if there's nothing other way to say it is when you read this, you should shun it like the flu virus. <laughs> you hear somebody has it, you don't go near it, right? This kind of a passage does that for me. I, say, I don't want to be like that. And Jesus would often say when he brought up Pharisees and scribes and hypocrites, he would say, Don't be like them. Don't be like them. Alright, so there's progression in this page. As he's explaining the situation in chapter number 5 with the rich and their dependence on their wealth. It's as if he put them on trial here. And when he gets down to verse 4 through 6, he starts to show the charges that are against them. What they have done to gain this kind of wealth. And that's, I believe, is a right way of looking at this passage. He says, you have done this. It's a self-regard that you had with this wealth. A self-regard that you had here. There are laborers out there. Remember, you saw it in verse number four. Laborers who mowed your field. They harvested your crops. We in this region understand that, don't we? They've done a, they've done that work for you, and that's a big job. But it says they were not paid. The laborers were not paid. It would seem that their livelihood was based on that paycheck. <laughs> we know that a little too well, don't we? Dependence of that. Here is the ones who have worked for you have been defrauded. They have not been given their. Their right due. What they have earned. They have not been given their salary. Very pitiful picture here. The rich keeping back what they have earned. Cheating them of what they have earned. Now, they didn't become rich apparently by good business negotiations, good contracts. Good hard work that produced better things. They didn't invest in their crops to make them better. They didn't invest in their machinery to make their harvest better. They didn't do that. They took the money from the workers. That's how they were getting rich. One commentator said that it is as if they would say, Well, we found a small point in what you've done, that we're going to have to penalize you for that. Wouldn't that be a frightful thing when you go in to get your paycheck and they say, oh, sorry, we, we, we can't give that to you. Um, you broke one of our rules. You forfeited your paycheck. That was what one commentator suggested is going on in this passage, that they it, it wasn't because of, of the businessmen's hard work that brought about their wealth but rather they stole from their own laborers they cheated them of their paycheck they withheld it, they delayed it not even delayed it but held it off because of some unwarranted technicality the fact is the laborers were still without money for the hard work that they had done they had been without pay and it says something very interesting here at the end of verse number four Somebody heard them. They protested. Their boss did not hear them. Somebody, somebody heard them. The Lord of Sabaoth. That sounds interesting, doesn't it? The Lord of Sabaoth heard them. Their, their cry went up before him. An interesting term. Sabaoth is not a name we use a lot. It's the idea from the Old Testament, the Lord of hosts. Host is a reference to military terminology. It's a military terminology. He, he's the Lord of the angelic army. And he's the leader of that. It would signify strength. I think it's the NIV that puts it in the Lord Almighty in that phrase. It speaks of strength, it, it speaks of his His uh, dominance speaks of his omnipotence. It's an expression like that. And God hears the oppressed workmen. Even if the employers are deaf, God hears it. And it would seem that the more that the workers cry out, the more that their wages cry out too, because the terminology is kind of fun, in that the wages are crying out too. Kind of an interesting picture of that. You want to know the word cry here? Krakos. It's a sound that a crow makes. When it's screaming. Or one commentator put it this way. It's the sound of a demon screaming. Now that doesn't go unnoticed. Such a sound like that. He says, that sound has reached my ears, the Lord says. I hear it. I hear it. Is that a new problem in the world? James is addressing something never happened before? No. There's that interesting section of Scripture. You can go back to the book of Amos, and most people say, is that in the Bible? Yeah. Amos is in the Bible. It's a minor prophet. That was a long time ago. Amos was writing in the time when Israel, the northern tribe of Israel, was a nation southern tribe was Judah they had split after Solomon's death and the northern tribe they quickly went into idolatry and apostasy and all these I mean they just had a a horrible testimony of being God's people on the earth and they acted like everybody else and and to some degree even worse than everybody else and toward the end of their time God sent two primary uh, prophets their way to tell them what was coming one was a man named Hosea, the other was a man named Amos. And Amos was a farmer. He, well, he worked in the figs. He, he was a fig farmer. Sounds like a fun job, huh? He was a fig farmer. And uh, Amos was given a message to proclaim. And I'm just going to read you a couple pieces of it here, because it sounds like James had just read that book. And Amos, if you want to try to find it, you got Hosea, Joel, Amos. All right, that comes right after Ezekiel and Daniel. If you find those bigger books, you can start finding Amos. It's a, it's a little book of about five or six chapters long. Um, yeah, it's about six, I think. No, it's eight, nine, sorry. It's nine <laughs> chapters long. It's close. Um, but in chapter number two, this is what Amos had to say. Now, mind you, he could have addressed idolatry, and that was a that was the main thing. He could have nailed them on that. He could address them on their their uh, artificial religious practices because they went through the motions and they really didn't mean it. Uh, he could have addressed them on a lot of major topics. But it's interesting how he addressed them on their wealth. This is what Amos said in chapter two, starting verse six. Sorry, Anthony, I left you hanging there. Uh, verse six through verse 16. Look at these words. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel, and for four. That means you're in trouble. Okay, that's a simple way of saying it. You're in big trouble. I've got four charges against you right now. Alright? He says, and, and, let's see, I will not revoke its punishment, because they sell the righteous for money, and the needy for a pair of sandals. These who pant after the very dust of the earth on the heads of the helpless and turn aside the way of the humble and a man and his father resort to the same girl in order to profane my holy name. On garments taken as pledges they stretch out beside every altar and in the house of their God they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them though his height was like the height of a cedar, and he was strong as the oaks. I even destroyed his fruit above and his root below. It is I who brought you up from the land of Egypt, and I who led you through the wilderness forty years, that you might take possession of the land of the Amorite. Then I raised up some of your sons to be prophets, and some of your young men to be Nazarites. Is this not so, O sons of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine. You've commanded the prophet, saying, You shall not prophesy. Behold, I have weighed down beneath you, as a wagon is weighed down when filled with sheaves. Flight will perish from the swift, and the steward will not strengthen his power, nor the mighty man save his life. He who grasps the ball will not stand his ground. The swift of foot will not escape, nor will he who rides the horse save his life. Even the harvest among the warriors, the the bravest among the warriors, will flee naked in that day, declares the Lord. That sounds like real trouble, doesn't it? Why? Here they are going through the parade of righteousness. They're going into the temple. They're going in for worship, right? And what are they doing? They're defrauding this person, defrauding that person, taking from them, taking from them, taking from them. And then they stand before God and they give him praise for what they have. He says, I condemn you for that. You've taken and taken and taken from other people. Chapter 4. Let's move there just for a minute. Verse 1 and 2. This is very unflattering, folks. I have to confess before I read it. All right? Hear this word, you cows of Bashan. He's talking to some of the women, I'm afraid to say. It's true. If you read the passage, it's like, ugh. All right? Hear your words. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan who are on the mountains of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, Bring now that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by His holiness. Behold, the days are coming upon you when they will take you away with meat hooks and the last of you with fish hooks. Here is not only just the the men were involved in this kind of uh this kind of behavior, but their wives were encouraging them. They'd sit at home and say, We need more. Get us more. Go get us more. And the husbands go out and defraud more people. That was God's indictment in that day. Now you'd say, okay, so it was happening in the Old Testament too. And it's happening in the days of James. And of course, by now we've solved that problem. Our world doesn't have problems like this anymore, right? We've moved way beyond that kind of behavior. Oh, I wish it were true. Matter of fact, that's only for unbelievers. Right? Oh my. Should we address this as a believer? Look at James 5 verse 5. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. This is not complimentary. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. That's self-indulgence. That's selfishness. That's self-centeredness. That's self-regard. That's self-importance. How many times can you put self in front of a word? Where was this problem? Where was it seated? Look at the end of verse number 5. You have fattened your hearts. It's an inward problem, isn't it? It's an inward problem. They have a lot of pride, and that's where a heart does the heart does seem to encourage these pride these hearts of ours, folks. I don't give it a whole lot of credibility in the sense that it's going to help me, because James or Jeremiah says it's deceitful. Says it's desperately wicked, and if you're trusting your heart for this or that, or you're saying I'm going to follow my heart in this kind of thing, say, like, wow, you've got a pretty rough uh, leader to follow there, because I know what the heart wants, and it's all about self. It's all about pride. It's in the feed me mode all the time. That's the, that's the human heart. That's what it wants. There's a great little story and, and actually it's one of my favorites among the, the stories of Dr. Seuss. Alright? It's the star belly sneeches. You know the story, the star belly sneeches? It's a story about those who have and those who have not. The star bellies had a star upon bars. They had a star on their belly. And they considered themselves to be more important than the Sneeches who didn't. And so, as the story goes, these in pride would not let the Star, the, 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 the Sneetches that did not have stars, participate in all the activities of the ones who had stars. And so they'd play their games and they'd do their things, and those who had no stars upon bars uh, were very frustrated with the fact they couldn't participate with the other Sneeches, And some wise inventor came to town with a machine a machine that put stars on bellies. And of course, they were willing to pay for it. So they all ran through and handed him their money so that they could get a star upon the Well, of course, those who had stars didn't like that. Because now it didn't distinguish them as greater than the others. So they went to this man and this man says, oh, I've got the perfect solution for you. I've got a machine that takes stars off of bellies. So for the price, I'll take that. And they ran through and they got the stars taken off. And it turns out, as the story goes, they all just went in circles, round and round. Stars on, stars off, stars on, stars off, stars on. Until they were so confused, they didn't know who had them and who didn't. They didn't know one group from the other. And one man drove away with all their money. It's an interesting story. You read that story, now you're going to go home and say, I've got to find that one. that one. That was always one of my favorite. The, the star belly sneeches, And I think about that. When I read a passage like this, these people, their hearts wanted it all. They wanted it all. And they would run over people to get it. They would take it from people to get it. That was how they built up their wealth. And do you think God doesn't see that? God doesn't notice. God doesn't hear the cries of those who have been defrauded by these. Well, you've already read these words. But they have a great disregard for the needs of those who work for them. They had a great disregard for God's people. And here's where it even gets worse. Chapter 5, verse 6. And you have condemned and put to death the righteous man. They took their wealth, ill-gottenly gained, of course, into the place of influence in the courts. And when these charges were brought about them, that would say such things like, he did not pay my wages, I worked for him, and such like that. Somehow, in the system, it was turned around that the righteous man was condemned for that. He was the one that was condemned. And even worse than that, he was put to death for it. Isn't that shocking? I don't know what the right word is for it. We live in a day and age where that is not so uncommon anymore. We could talk about what we've seen in politics in the last three months. Call it character assassination, whatever you want to call it. Whether or not one is right or one is wrong or whatever, but how people will fight. With their goal is to destroy the opponent. That's what you see in this picture. People who are actually in the wrong, condemning and putting to death the righteous man. Yes, their cries have gone before the Lord, but their cries are not heard by their employers. Their cries are not heard by their judges. Their cries are not heard by their executioner. But it's not the first time a righteous man has stood before that kind of a system and stood there as quiet as a lamb before the slaughter. Who might that have been? Jesus Christ. Condemned by the rich. Condemned by the powerful. Condemned by those who manipulate the system. Condemned by those who are unrighteous. Condemned by those who are jealous, condemned by those who wanted him out of the way because it was a threat to them. So they put him on a cross and he went as silent as a lamb before the slaughter. That's that's an incredible thing. That's an incredible thing. Let me just say it this way, because Paul's or James is going to address this in the next section. He says, Now brethren, just be patient. <laughs> That's a hard thing to say to somebody in the midst of that. But he has good authority to call for that. Because that's the way Jesus was. You see, the more you know Christ, the more you act like him. And when you act like him, you read these verses, and your response is going to be different than the way that our own hearts want to respond. We want justice. We want this fixed. We want we want this to be to be corrected right now Lord do it change this situation what if he doesn't How do you live down here You live by faith You live by faith in a God who loves you a God who has designed your life He's sovereign in that life He's got your future already mapped out doesn't he Doesn't he have a place prepared for you? Aren't you going to be there? You see how quickly we lose our perspective? We start to say, well, if nobody's going to fight for us, we better fight for ourselves. And we go all about the ways of how we need to answer this. And that's not the answer. The answer is to look to the Savior. His example is standing right before us right now. Here's an interesting thing. I'll just add this point, and then I'm going to make some application, okay? Real simple stuff, but listen. A.T. Robertson, the Greek scholar, when he was reading through this passage, when he got to the end of verse number six, he says, he does not resist you. He says, well, you can take that as a statement. That's true of, uh, of this poor, righteous man, this innocent man. He's being run over, and he doesn't resist you. He says, Yeah, you could take it that way, it says it that way. But also in a Greek way of expressing things, that could be a question. And not a question that he is referring to the man being run over, but he with the capital H. Does he resist you? Talking about does the Lord resist that righteous or that rich man who's running over? All of his people. Who ultimately is the one that that rich man is going to have to stand before? They're going to find out soon enough that God's against them. God will not resist all the way. And that's a question that Robertson adds to the thought. He says... Perhaps that's just the question. Maybe it's the Lord of Sabaoth. He's the one who will judge ultimately. Will he not? As if that's the way James brought that up. Will not he resist you? Nobody else can resist you. But God can. God can. You see, when you become dependent upon the wealth, you have to protect it. You have to guard it. And by the way, it never is enough. Because that's the nature of the heart. It says, give me more, give me more, give me more. And when it has to be protected and built up, it's easy for it to become self-regard, selfishness, self-centered. And it starts to pull against those to whom it belongs. There's a picture here that's really ugly, isn't it? It's a really, really ugly picture. Now, I want to just simply talk to you about this. How does that compare to living faith? How does that compare to the authentic faith we're called to live? From whom do we, prov- we receive our provisions? It's from the Lord. Right? Who gives us the needs for this day? I think it's part of our our prayer we've been taught. Give us this day our daily bread. Here's a simple thing I want you to think about this week as you go through it Are we truly dependent upon Him? This is a question I want you to have because it's going to lead that way in this chapter. Am I dependent on Him? If I am not dependent on Him, who else am I depending on? That's the question I want you to ask. As you go throughout the day, thinking about your life. Thinking about what it means to live in faith. Where is my dependence? If you feel that these first six verses are a pretty good picture of what you see in the mirror, I would say it's a good time to talk to the Lord about it. If you read this and you say, no, Lord, I'm not so much like the rich man, but I'm kind of on the other side of the other guy. I'm more like the guy getting run over here. Again, set it before yourself like the mirror and say, how am I responding to that in a world like ours? Do I have to defend my life? Do I have to defend my rights? Do I have to defend my little castle? Do I have to defend my pile of wealth? There's a check of the heart right there, isn't there? Because the Lord will tell us later, dependence on me is what I'm calling you to do. That's living faith. It's challenging, folks, I have to confess. It's challenging. And if you're sitting there saying, I'm still, I'm not sure I get it quite yet, Pastor. Talk to the Lord about this. Alright? We'll come back next week, and we'll work on it some more, and you guys keep coming back to hear this stuff, so... Um, I'll give you some more, but uh, next week, let's see what else the Lord has to tell us in a passage like this. Heavenly Father, boy, you prick us deep at times when we have to look at our own hearts and and see where we stand with you. Far too often, we set our eyes not not on you, but on our circumstances. We set our eyes on our own treasures. We set our eyes on our own future. We set our eyes on our own accomplishments. We set our eyes on what we think we can do. And here at the very end, I think it was simple to say that it was Christ who set an example for us who entrusted himself to his father. A simple phrase, but one that really strikes deep with us. To entrust ourselves to our Father to have living faith. Help us with this passage, Lord. We have a lot to Lord. But you are so gracious with us and I thank you for that. So patient with us. So so kind to us. You know what we ought to be and you know what we will be. And we long for that day when we shall be like Christ and we stand in your presence. Until then, Lord, there's work to be done, and we're glad that you're doing the work. Help us with it, we pray, that we might be a willing participant in your great work in our life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.